We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And you can also take a peek at their website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. You can listen to old shows there. And of course, ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good Hi, Scott. Good to see you. Yeah. So we're going to talk about buying a family business. Yes. Now, is this a business that's already owned by a family or a family that decides to get in business? Uh, Both depends on the size of the transaction. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so, you know, you get a lot of these people later in their stages of life. They've done a great job in running their company. Mm -hmm. And uh, it gets to the end. Who do they sell it to? Yeah. And so they, they... they look at employees, and quite often employees don't have the money. But sometimes there it might be a, a family um, person working for them, and they've often right. been like a fairly high up, like a general manager or a vice president, or and may not have all the training necessary. But they would be trusted, and plus their name would also help in the in, in a nice succession on to the next step. Right. But it is tough. Like you know, you you may built up this great business, but let's say it's worth a million dollars. Well, who do you sell it to? So they, let, let's say you're selling it to your nephew. So the nephew says, perfect, I'll buy that. That sounds great. I, I've, been run, I've been working here for 30 years. Um, I'm you know, 50 myself now. And uh, yeah, I'd love to take this over and see if I can bring it to the next step. Well, where's he going to get the money? And, and that's, the, that's where it ends usually. Where where do the employees get that's the money? A lot, that's where a lot of good ideas exactly. end on. When it comes <laughs> where to the you money. get the money? <laughs> Show me the money. <laughs> yeah, oh, not so much for that. <laughs> well... One thing the owner of the family business could do, say the uncle, is they could take back a mortgage themselves. But that wasn't really the point. They didn't want to have to, they want to just get rid of it. They want to go yeah. wash their hands, take the it's money gone, around. take their money, it's gone. And so one option is taking back a mortgage, but it's not, their, it's not the one they'd like. So then the nephew's saying, okay, well, I'll go see what, how much I could borrow. And they could borrow, say, half of it from a, a bank. And generally, they can, you know, perhaps use their own house as collateral. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's say they're in pretty good financial shape, and they can get half a million dollars. Where are they going to get the other half a million? And this is the quandary, and this is ju- often where it stops, right there. So I had a situation and a few weeks ago, and basically somewhat similar to this. And I looked at it, and the, the parents of the nephew said, you know, what we could do is we can, borrow, we can lend you the money. And I said, okay. So they, they approached me. He says, well, my, my son's going to be buying this business. What's the best way out of it? He says, I just want to take my 500000 which is virtually all the money and non-registered, and give it to him, and he'll pay me back. Okay. Well, by doing that, and that's the easiest way. And this is actually what a lot of people look at. They say, okay, what's the easy way? We don't want to really get any high finance here. We just want to give him the money. He'll owe us the money back. We'll do a promissory note so that the other... Um, family, you know, the other brothers and sisters know about it in case there is a death of the, of the parents and so that the other kids don't kind of get ripped off when the parents die. So anyway, that is an option and they would have this paid back in 10 years. Well, if they're 65, not that big of a deal, they'd be 75 and hopefully in good health and, and they'd be paid off if everything goes right. Mm-hmm. What could possibly go wrong in buying a, a small business, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so... I looked at this and I said, well, if you did cash in the investments, 
you would have about a hundred thousand dollar capital gain. And uh, they said, okay, well, what's what's the implication of that? Well, fifty thousand of that gain is taxable, and it would throw you offside on your old age clawback. So you would not get any old age security for one year, and let's just say one spouse gets the old age clawback, uh, maybe not both, or even half and half each. So it works out to about seven thousand dollars in old age old age security. They're going to miss out that year, hmm. plus. They're going to be paying tax at about forty percent on that money, which works out to you know about twenty thousand dollars. So in total, they're looking at a twenty-seven thousand dollar tax bill. Plus, they're going to give away the money, five hundred thousand, and then they'll get it all back eventually. Now the problem is also that you would hope the son or the daughter, but in this case a son, would pay interest. But it's always hard, I find, for parents to charge interest to a kid. Just because, you know, if they're not paying interest, they feel, why should I charge? Because they've already pulled all their money out, and now it's difficult to charge. Mm-hmm. But their money's not earning money now. So the opposite side of this is I look at, well, what if you were to borrow? Now, who the heck should borrow at, say, 65 years old? You're debt-free. you got some money in the bank. Why would I ever want to borrow? And this is why it makes sense. So first of all, there's two ways to borrow. One is you could use your line of credit. And if you use it on your house, you will probably get about prime plus a quarter or prime plus a half. So the interest rates on prime currently are 2.7. So you could borrow, say, 3.2. So that's not a bad deal. Well, particularly if your investments were earning 5%. And they're probably earning even higher than 5%. So why would you cash in investments earning 5 when you can borrow at 3.2? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that's option one. Option two is... Why don't you take a mortgage? With today's interest rates, there's a lot of talk about interest rates rising. If you took a five-year mortgage right now, you can get a five-year mortgage at 2.5, which is actually 0.2 less than prime. Mm-hmm. And you have no worries about this ever rising. Okay. Well, the question I, I got immediately is where are we gonna get the where are we gonna get these payments from? How do you pay this? You know, we're we're living pretty comfortable, we got our pensions, but I don't want to make payments on this mortgage. Well, you still got the 500000 sitting there. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you can have the money pay you the interest every month. So the debt doesn't go up or down. It mm-hmm. just kind of rides until finally, after 10 years, it gets paid off. Now, the nice thing about this, because you're now borrowing for an investment purpose, you're lending it in a promissory note, so it's legal. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is done by a lawyer. And so again, just to safeguard the other two kids, because you don't want to have any issues if both parents die and what happens to say let's say there's three kids well one brother's already got 500,000 and you got to make sure there's a promissory note to see where that money went so first of all because it's a legal loan it's an investment for the parents they're borrowing to invest and basically lend to their son mm-hmm. at an interest rate well therefore it's tax deductible you're borrowing for investment purposes so not only are you now borrowing at at say two and a half percent if you took the mortgage route, which is the route I would recommend, you now get to have that as a tax deduction each year. Mm-hmm. So you're really borrowing at 1.75%. So if your investments are outperforming 1.75% a year, you're ahead of the game. Yeah. And it allows flexibility because now you're simply using the investments to make the payments on this. And you still have all the funds. Now, the other part about this is you are charging, you can now charge the child because you are actually showing that you are paying interest on this. Mm-hmm. It's far easier now to charge 
the child money because you are paying for it. Yeah. Okay, they actually see the debt. Versus if you just cash in your investments, now you feel guilty charging them interest. Mm-hmm. Or a lot of people do. I wouldn't. Oh, there you go. Well, <laughs> and I, I, sorry. I would hope you're being a good out, camp. Did I say that out loud? Yeah, just a little bit. That's okay. I'm sorry. I don't know if anybody was listening. No. It's early no, still, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> Family's in bed. <laughs> um, now, the opportunity cost of that 500000 was the first thing that caught my eye. See, if you had that 500000 <clears> invested for just five years, because let's say they, the person's got to go to the bank and they have to make payments. Well, the bank wants to get their money back. So often the bank says, well, you got to pay us first. We're first in line. Then you can pay whoever afterwards. If you got other financing, I don't care where you get the financing, pay us first. Mm-hmm. And that's how the bank gets the first position. So the family, or the, the mom and dad in this case, they're second position. So they don't get a penny for five years. And then they get paid off in the following five years after the son paid off the bank. Right. So they would make the payments from the investment. And so what it worked out is that 500,000 would be growing at 5%, less paying out the interest of 1.75% per year. After tax, that's what it works out to. That money would grow to $586,000. So here we are five years later and you got 586,000. Well, what about, they've done one other part of this. If you cashed in the money, you had to come up with $27,000 to pay the taxes yeah. and the old age clawback. So now you would have had another 27,000 sitting there growing at 5%. And that would have grown to about 34,500. So in total, in five years, by doing this, you still have $624,000 sitting in your investments mm. versus cashing in your money, you'd have zero. You would have no money in your investments. So that's in five years. So now you, you extrapolate this further, they're starting to pay it down. Well, the 500, first of all, <laughs> it's easy to charge this kid interest because you've been paying it. So you can get all that interest. And you've got 624,000 working for you. In another five years, that is going to, and basically you're ahead of the game right now. And when I say you're ahead of the game, your estate's ahead of the game. Your other, you know, say um, brothers and sisters, got an extra 125,000 and yourself for that matter, because the estate would have grown by 125,000 in five years. than if you just cashed in the funds. So that money now gets paid off in, in 10 years and the whole thing's paid off. You are, uh, you're better off borrowing and having it all paid off in this fashion by about $200,000. Hmm. Okay. So for what, what seemed like a, you know, a sizable amount, 500,000 is no chicken scratch, but to cost you, what you want to do if you're, if you're trying to lend money, what's fair to the other kids, okay? What's the best way to charge interest to the other kids? What's the best way to be the most tax, def- most tax effective? And obviously not cashing anything early is more tax effective because you're not paying a capital gain ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And also you get to write off the interest. So here we are, fast forward 10 years, the loan's paid off, the parents still have this money, they're not, and it would have grown substantially by about 200,000 more. So they'll, they'd have about 800,000, maybe 750 to 800,000, versus paying it back 100,000 a year over five years, you might have 600,000. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're definitely ahead by a $200,000 difference. And I know this is the, the, the hardest part though, is always to say, well, 
I don't like debt, okay? Because I paid off my mortgage 20 years ago. I buy my cars cash. I never borrow. I, I make sure I've never paid interest in my life. My credit card, I've never paid a penny of interest. This is good interest. When you are getting a third of your interest back on tax, that's called a good loan rather than a bad loan where credit card debt or, or consumer debt's a bad loan. This is a good loan. Your investments are way ahead of the game. And what you're doing, you're doing, you're accomplishing all your goals. You've helped out your son by a business. You've helped out your other son and daughters by not ravaging your, your money. And the best part is you've also helped your, yourself against the government. You won in this game. And that's always a good part of the financial plan. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. 905-529-7165. Call now, leave a message, they'll get back to you. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can check out their website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. And as well, you can give them a call now. They'll get back to you. Just leave a message at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. Talking about vacation properties here. Vacation property. You were talking about succession planning for businesses. This is succession planning for vacation properties. So whether it's your cottage, your chalet in Aspen, <laughs> your condo in Florida, wherever it is. And, uh, but most often the conversations that, that Don and I end up with in, in terms of speaking with clients is about their cottage and the legacy of the cottage, the historic, you know, the history of yeah. all the family memories and how, how best to keep the cottage in the, in the family. And so I ran into uh, a client situation uh, last week, and it's just interesting how every cottage situation is so unique. It's mm-hmm. just, there isn't two stories the same, right? Yeah, every, everybody is different. And um, so in this situation, the, uh, my clients who are in their late 50s, uh, their, their mother, uh, the, the, the wife's mother is interested in, in gifting the cottage to her. Mm-hmm. And so there, she also has a brother and a sister. And the brother and the sister haven't been involved in the cottage for the last decade. So they were not ever really interested in having the cottage. Now, what's interesting about that is that's one of the biggest hurdles that people have right out of the get-go is who's actually going to end up with the cottage or who do we want to end up with the cottage? And then how do we equalize things Mm -hmm. so that that is still, uh, that's fair for everybody. And so the fairness question is is an interesting one. And, you know, you could just look at, well, what's the fair market value of the cottage today? And if we split that three ways, then that's really what each of them should get out of it. But it turns out that one of them wants to buy it. So, I mean, mm. you have to come up with cash, some other way to kind yeah. of try and equalize things. What was interesting about this story is that there wasn't so much an interest in equalizing things because the cottage had sort of been a non, uh, the other ones hadn't used it at all. 
um, that was sort of being maintained and looked after by the daughter mm-hmm. and and her husband and and family. And so they um, they had sort of put in sweat equity over the last you know 10, 15 years anyway. So and would was, that hold value? I guess it would, or would it? It, it doesn't. It doesn't hold value on paper, yeah. but it does hold value emotionally right. in terms of you know understanding. You know, well, the reason it's worth what it is today is right. because of we've looked after it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the story started back in 1970. So the original cottage lot, which is 10 acres, and nice. it was about wonderful property, uh, about 350 feet of frontage on the mm-hmm. water, uh, was purchased. The 10 acres for $5,000 in 1970. Uh, not long after that, around 1972. They uh, spent about thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars. They figured was spent on building the actual cottage that's there, and um, and and there's some there's some interesting dates as we come along through the process here. But that's so 1972 cottage built. In 1981, nine years later, mom and dad divorce, and mm. there was a valuation put on the cottage at that time of divorce in 1981 the fair market value was deemed to be about $51,000 so we had that number we had the number and by the way the co- how much did it cost to build it that was sort of a ballpark number there aren't a lot of receipts it was built by a local farmer mm. so nobody really knew exactly how much was paid it was probably paid in chunks over a period of, of months so they or couldn't years. claim that because normally that would be an, an advantage to have it that information. would be a great advantage yeah. but but it was unclear exactly uh, what it was worth um, in terms of the, the cost to build it. So 1981, mom and dad divorce, a valuation of 51000 Three years later in 1984, mom moves to the United States. Wow. So in 1984, she moves to the United States and she spends uh, from 1984 to last year, 2016, living in California, living in Florida. And her in the final years, she was in Florida. And she'd owned a mobile home in Florida in a in a community retirement park. And so she sold that and in 2016 moves back to Ontario and is renting an apartment. So now here we are in 2017, a year and a half, about a year and a half later, and the conversation is coming up again about how do we deal with a cottage? Oh, I'd like to get it into your hands. Uh, you know, should we do it now? Should I do it in my estate? What should we do? And so one question I had, well, what's, what do you think it's worth today? And of course, that's an always, that's a moving target yeah. as well for cottage properties. So MPAC, the Municipal Property Assessment Corporation, does evaluation. What you tend to see is waterfront properties get nailed for, for taxes, for mm-hmm. property taxes, because the local communities that are providing sub, you know, funding for their schools, yeah, funding for their hosts, they love, yeah. <laughs> they love those waterfront cottage properties from people in the city with all kinds of money. So they tend to charge them very high rates of tax. Uh, and so the fair market value, according to uh, MPAC assessment, was 389000 So that's what they put on it for 2017. And so if you, actually looking back in the history of capital gains and, and what taxes have to be paid in terms of capital gains, when it comes to properties, there's a few things you want to be you're obviously thinking about. The first one is principal residence exemptions. And we'll talk about that in a second. But the first one actually goes back to 1972. 1972, they call it V-Day, which was a valuation day, not victory day. And it it was really when capital gains first started. So up Mm -hmm. until that point, capital gains tax didn't even exist. 
So I don't know whoever thought that up. We should have yeah. fired them. But it's worked out well for the government, I think, more yes. than anything. And, um, and there's something about capital gains, just on a different note, also, you're taxed on inflation to a certain extent because goods right. just go up. Yeah. So it's not that they're going up by any large amount. Housing prices go up, price of lumber goes up. So actually, so the price of a house long term, now I know Southern Ontario seems funny, it's just going up by the inflation. Yeah. So it goes up double over 20 years. Well, that was just the inflation rate. Now you're being taxed simply on the inflation. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly. What it was. Yeah. <clears throat> so 19, uh, 1972 was V-Day when valuations start, first started being taxed in terms of capital gains. And the other one, which was 1994. So the next question I had to ask was, did your mother or did you guys make an, a, a capital gains election in 1994. And in 1994, you were allowed, well, actually it was 1992. The deadline was 1994 to be able to uh, apply to CRA. But basically you could bump up the adjusted cost base to $100,000. So in other words, everybody was allowed to earn $100,000 of capital gains, whether it was from investments, whether it was from the sale of property, tax-free. If you hadn't taken advantage of it, you could increase the base or the cost base of your investment to $100,000 on your real estate. So most people who owned a cottage, if it was, uh, they wanted to make sure that, you know, the difference between the current value and the cost base was, uh, uh, they'd taken advantage of that 100000 So that was not done in this case. So mm. there's no uh, 1994 election to increase the ACB. So we don't get any relief from that. We get minor relief. We kind of would have to go back to 1972 to figure out when was that place actually built and what was the value at the time it was built. And then we have to think about the principal residence election during the period when mom was away living in the U.S. uh, as well. So in the exemption, if there's no exemption on the principal residence, because basically she owned another property and was living outside of the country. This was not, she was not using this as her principal residence. It all becomes capital gains when it's sold or when it's gifted. Uh, And now the, the, the issue around gifting is an important one because there's always going to be a tax liability, whether you gift it or you, it happens at death. And the problem with typically giving a cottage during your lifetime is how do you come up with the money to pay the tax on the capital gains now because you're obviously not selling the property and you don't have an estate that you're cashing money in to pay the taxes either. So what's the advantage of gifting it ahead of time? Why just not wait? It's a great great question. Is there an advantage? There's two, probably two advantages in this case. And one of them is sort of a generic advantage and the other would be uh, specific more to this case. In this case, because the, the daughter is doing all the sort of sweat equity right now and looking after the property, any future growth you know, is really going to be attributed to what she does right. and, uh, as opposed to, as in addition to the market value increase. So really what it does for the, for the parent is it locks in the cost and the, and the taxation of the property because this is the value it is right now. Mm-hmm. This is how much tax we're going to have to pay. It's a known number. And yeah. now I can think about that, use that number when I'm doing my estate planning because I know exactly sort of how to right. equalize things. It's not a moving target. So it might be simpler. It's, it's, very, it's much simpler. Right. The problem is you have to come up with the cash to be able to pay the tax right. and how do you structure that. Right. Um, so in this case, it started to make sense to probably do it during your lifetime. But you still have to pay the tax. You got to right? pay the so tax. There really isn't any financial advantage. 
Uh, well, you can structure the sale of the cottage over a five-year period. Right. And the advantage to that is that you can actually reduce the taxes owing by splitting it or spreading it over five years. And where the advantage in that comes into play is that you're only going to pay a little bit of tax or add a little bit of income to right. your to your uh, tax return each year. And so it keeps you in a lower tax bracket. Right. And it avoids, and Don talked about this in the last segment about old age security clawback. You Suddenly your income yeah. jumps up dramatically. You're going to lose your old age security. You're going to pay a lot of tax. Right. So in fact, the, it, on, on in rough figures... We had a gain. We figured there's probably, we're going to use that $51,000 value. Um, and thinking about it's, it's, uh, the, the, that was the divorce value, but she was still could use it as principal residence. So really it's from, it's from 1984 when she moved to the USA up until 2016, what was the increase? And we're guessing it to be around $330,000 is going to be the increase. So half of that's taxable, 165000 The tax is going to push her into a 45% tax bracket. She's going to owe about $74,000 in tax to do it and gift it to the daughter right now. Well, the daughter's thinking, I'll give mom $74,000 to pay her tax because we end up with a cottage, which is great, and then we can worry about equalization in her estate later. Mm-hmm. And they have the money. They've been think they've been planning this for the yeah. last four or five years. They've got, you know, a hundred grand set aside to be able to do this. But plan B, which kind of made a little more sense, is what if you if you sold it today, but she structures it over a five year period where you make, in essence, five payments. Now she's not going to ask for the money, but on paper it will be structured as a five year payment. To, for her to receive her money, and then she can re- pay her capital gains tax over five years. Mm-hmm. Well, now what happens is that instead of having to pay $74,000 in tax, uh, she only has to pay $9,800 a year, all right? So she's going to save about $25,000 in tax by spreading it out over five years. So right, yeah. it's more beneficial for mom to spread it over five years. And now all the daughter has to come up with is roughly about 10 grand a year year, for five years. So she only has to pay 50 grand to get the cottage. Mm -hmm. Uh, So things are sounding better and better. (laughs) And, And so... The, you know what I guess what it comes down to when you're thinking about cottages, um, the principal residence exemption is going to be a big key to understanding what is going to be the tax position, and preserving your adjusted cost base. And the one problem I guess this situation had over the years is that nobody really kept track of how much was spent on right. upgrading the cottage. Right. And this, the whole conversation started because they wanted twelve grand to build a dock. Yeah. And I said, <laughs> and I said, <laughs> well, well, we can find like the a 12, renovation. Yeah, we can find the twelve. Grand, that's not a problem, but you know, you're making sure you keep track of that. And then we got into the whole conversation about the cottage. And, uh, but again, keeping track of those capital improvements yeah. is critical, not sweat equity. That doesn't count, yeah. not part of the deal. Um, we talked about, uh, you know, gifting during your lifetime. The one mistake that, that people will often think about is I'm going to give it to them for free and I'm going to charge them $0. So they're going to get it for zero yeah. and, and I'll, uh, and I'll hand it over to them and it's out of my hands. I don't have to worry about it. Well, that's considered a deemed disposition. You're deemed to have sold the cottage. So in this case, it's still sold at fair market value. She still has $165,000 capital gain. She still has to pay 75 grand. Even if you get doesn't change, doesn't yeah. change her yeah. tax position. So they yeah. now have it at zero, but guess what? When they sell it, 
what did what was their cost base? Zero. Mm-hmm. So now if they sold it ten years from now for six hundred thousand, mm-hmm. the whole gain is six is taxable. Yeah. The whole six hundred thousand, yeah. not the difference from the three eighty nine to six hundred, right. because she gave it to them for zero do- at zero dollars. Mm. Pretty sure the government wins in that one. Yeah, so it's double taxation. <laughs> double taxation. You just crucified yourself in terms of the tax bill. Mm. Um, so the only other scenario, which is pretty common, is running into multiple owners. In this case, the three children, the three siblings, mm-hmm. were all in agreement that the other two aren't interested in it and the one wants it. But now what happens when you've got one or two or three siblings that are all involved and they all want to be part of the cottage? And everybody has different See, you'd think structures. that would be easier, but that could ah, be harder. It can be easier. Yeah. And one of the greatest tools, I think, in part of that is you may not want to do it during your lifetime, per se, but there may be reasons to do it during your lifetime. But if you draft the gift through your will, you can include the requirement that a co-ownership agreement be signed by all three parties as part of the right to receive your share of the cottage. Mm. So if you don't sign off on a co-ownership agreement, you don't get your share. Wow. And the co-ownership agreement- <laughs> That could be a problem and a solution. <laughs> yeah. So the, co- the co-ownership agreement is drafting out rules of engagement. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because soon as things start going wrong with the cottage and people are feeling they're not doing their once somebody's not doing their fair share, the chances of getting someone to sign a co-ownership agreement at that point is slim and nil. And now you're into you know mm-hmm. kind of a, a, a head headbutting situation. In most situations like this, where there would be multiple kids that may be interested in there's passing of a cottage or something like that down, do you yeah. find that they do keep it amongst all of themselves or do you feel, or do you find in the end, they just buy each other out and one person gets it? Well, that's tricky because sometimes what's happened is co-ownership means the right of survivor. So if you have a brother and a, two sisters and let's say the two sisters die and it was all owned a third, a third, a third. Now it's all the brothers, yeah. the grandchildren or the the son or daughters-in-laws never got any access to it. So you've got to be careful how you structure that ownership when you die. Is it going families. to be tenants in common? Is it going to, is their share, if one of your child dies, yeah. is, it going to, is it going to carry on, carry on to your grandchildren or to their, uh, their, their spouse? Shares in the cottage. <laughs> that can be difficult. Uh, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call them now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget the website, andyanddon.com. You can check out old shows there and ask a question as well via their listener inquiry button. Uh, planning a tax-effective death. Yeah, how how do we do that? How rosy is that one? <laughs> exactly. Well, now, do we do this before or after the will? <laughs> Good point. Uh, but a, you know, a client of mine's a doctor, and one thing he told me, you know, death is inevitable. It's just a phase. It's just another part of life. Yep. And he and he took it very matter of fact. And I guess you know, when you're dealing with sure. people that are sick, it's not a, a big issue. It's just part of life. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, I know Andy's probably had the same circumstances. Is all of a sudden we have a client that gets. A basically a death sentence. They've got some type of a yeah. cancer, or they're given so much. They're terminally ill. Right. And really, we have two kind of schools of clients: ones that don't tell anybody, and then they die, and then basically the stuff hits the fan, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. Because now 
they think, wow, if you had told me, we could have done this and this and this and this and this mm. to save you tax. Yeah. Now, last week... It's funny because you, you guys often talk about that. You don't know when you're going to die, so you really can't plan for a lot of this. But unfortunately, here's a scenario where you can. We can definitely do that. And then there's a lot of cases, unfortunately, um, where they're just getting old. Yeah. Okay. You're, you're, you're 95. You're not going to be yeah. long, a lot longer. Let's plan this out. Or, of course, cancer is the one that hits home a lot. Yeah. And uh, last week, I was at St. Peter's um, Hospital with a client of mine that did everything right, okay? Not only um, physically, she, you know, she ran, she mm. ate properly, she had a good life, she, she traveled, she had social circles, she did all the right things. But unfortunately, melanoma turned into cancer that turned into brain cancer. So I, I had the, she calls me up and we sat there last week with her two daughters and herself and we planned the rest of her days from an from a tax planning standpoint. Yeah. So she looks there and she has RSPs. Well, last year we heard this was an issue. So we actually, RSP planning, withdrawal planning is important because if you could have split the tax bill over two years rather than adding all the RSPs in one year, you're going to save a lot of tax. Yeah. If your income's over 220000 a year in one year, you're paying 53.5% tax. So in this case, she, uh, she, did, she was only 64 last year. So we, we upped her income to basically get right up to about the 45% level, mm-hmm. okay? And so she paid a lot of tax, but she paid at 30%, 33%, 40%. Her tax on those RSPs is about 35%. So had we waited till this year, she would pay a lot more tax, and a lot of it would be taxed at 53.5%, as right. I mentioned. The next is look at the TFSAs. Make sure they're maximized, Okay. Because all the money growing inside the TFA, TFSA will continue to grow tax-free. And even better, it goes directly to the beneficiaries. And it's a successor annuitant is what you need to put on there. Okay, so that it simply goes directly to them. If it's a, if it's a, um, a wife or a husband, if it's simply beneficiaries to your kids, in this case, it doesn't really matter. It'll go right to the kids. But again, avoids probate tax. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Beneficiaries in general, look to the the risks, look to the RSPs, um, look to the life insurance, okay, to make sure that they're done properly. Um, secondly, check those wills. It's one of those things that you did so long ago, mm-hmm. and you've got now adult children. How many people have looked at those wills and realized, wow, my brother or even my parents are still the executors yeah. on those wills? And... Why should I have to pay? Why should the estate pay, say, a 5% executor fee? Well, the kids are going to get all the money anyway. Mm-hmm. And they're at age now. <clears throat> they say they're in their 30s, that they can simply look at the money, divide it amongst them, because the will basically said, very straightforward, half goes to one child, half goes to the other. Mm-hmm. Okay? You don't need a lot of work um, for this. And they were well past the, you know, they're very responsible one, right. you know, now that they're in their 30s. So go and check that will. Um, power of attorneys. Well, you have um, sound mind and body, so to speak. Get the power of attorneys done. Uh, make sure that they're all effective. Because the problem with the power of attorney, they can't change things after. So for certain things. So for example, they can't change a bank account to joint ownership. Right. Where they're the joint owner. Because the power of attorney can't all of a sudden be the joint owner. They can't change a beneficiary to them. Mm-hmm. So you have to have, first of all, you have to make sure all the beneficiaries and the joint ownership is all intact. Be, 
because you're, a lot of people think the power of attorney can do all these things. They can't. It's a conflict of interest. So getting that in order. Look at selling the house. Or I know, Andy, you've done some work in, in changing the ownership of the house. Well, you can, yeah, you can actually use a uh, alter ego trust mm-hmm. structure where you move the home into a trust that is still owned and controlled by you, the the original ten, uh, original owner, and but it names the children as beneficiaries, and that's fantastic because you what you end up doing is saving the probate tax on the whole value of the home, hmm. plus any legal costs really are minimal because it's already structured who it's going to go to. It bypasses the will, goes right. directly to the kids. And these costs normally, yeah, you're probably looking about fifteen hundred bucks. Fifteen hundred dollars. Yeah. Well, $1,500 is still a lot less than, say, an $800,000 home mm-hmm. where you're going to pay closer to $10,000 exactly. in uh, probate tax. Yeah. Um, like, again, life insurance, make sure it's a direct beneficiary okay, to the kids. And I know we, did, we, we basically checked off all the boxes in this case. Had we not got together a year ago, some of it last year and some of it this year, if her whole estate passed through, it would have been about a million dollars and it would be $15,000 in probate. This avoided the $15,000 probate tax because now everything's got a beneficiary, mm-hmm. joint ownership, the life insurance is fine. They changed the, they were changing the wills. We're changing the ownership of the house or selling the house. We're kind of in the proceeds of both those now. It's going to be a smooth transaction. And the ones that end up winning, 100% are the kids. And that's where the money was supposed to go in the first place. Instead of the tax, man. You got it. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call them now and leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. Also, check out the website, Andy and Don, all one word, andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button and also listen to old shows. All right, talking about debt swapping. Debt swap. Yep. Not all debt is created equal. Did you know that? No. That's true. (laughs) Some debt you get to pay interest on and it's not tax deductible. And some debt you can pay interest on and it is tax deductible. Mm -hmm. And when you think about a tax deduction for your interest expense, uh, that saves you tax because just like you putting $1,000 into an RRSP saves you tax because you're deducting it from your income, you pay $1,000 in interest for uh, a loan where the interest is tax deductible, it saves you the exact same amount of tax. It's written off on line 221 of your tax return, which is carrying charges and interest expense on money borrowed to earn investment income. How do you know that? That is the line. (laughs) How do you know that? And the reason, well, because we do it all the time, but (laughs) but the purpose of that is very very specific because if you borrow money, say, to buy gold, which doesn't produce an income, it does produce a capital gain. In other words, it just goes up in value, you'd hope, over time. You'd hope, yes. Uh, and you sold it for a gain, you could not deduct the interest to buy a ca- uh, gold because right. it doesn't have any income associated with it or has no potential to make an income. Right. And that's, pro- that's also key too because many people will buy real estate in the, in the, with the idea of renting it and they may have rental losses. But the idea is eventually it should turn to a profit. So mm-hmm. it has the potential to turn to a profit. So you raw, borrow- raw land, for example, <coughs> if you borrowed for a well, that's a good land. example too. Yeah, I mean, you might, maybe you were le- if you leased it out to a farmer, I guess you might be able mm-hmm. to get away with it. But in general, if you just buy a lot 
with nothing on it, it's going to be a capital gain if you sold it, right. then you wouldn't be able to deduct the interest. Uh, so debt swapping is where you want to take debts that you currently have where the interest is not tax deductible and turn them into debts that are tax deductible. So typically, in a situation today where this would with this would work, let's say you have a mortgage, right? You buy money, if you buy, sorry, you borrow money to buy a home, principal residence, you don't get to write it off. You're not going to produce any income. You're living there. You borrow money to buy a car and it's just for personal use. You're paying interest on it, not tax deductible. So these are all non-deductible interest costs. But if you also have non-registered assets, and when I say non-registered assets, I'll give you an example. So it might be, let's say you own a GIC or you own stock or you own a mutual fund or you own... um, uh, a share ownership plan. And when I say stocks, a lot, many times an individual might be part of or a member at work in a share ownership plan a purchase agreement where they're buying stock on a regular basis of their company and the company is matching it 50 cents on the dollar, et cetera. And so they're accruing stock in their business mm-hmm. or in that in their um, workplace business. So you might be able to sell the stock pay off your non-deductible debts, and then turn around, borrow the same amount of money, and buy back the stock that you originally had. What you've now done is you've changed your debt into a tax-deductible debt and made a swap. And there's a couple of caveats to this. First one is, if the stock that you're selling is in a loss position, in other words, it's worth less than what you put in, if you sell it and then you buy it back within 30 days, you will not be allowed to trigger or use the capital loss for tax purposes. You must wait at least 30 days. Mm-hmm. If it's in a gain position, it doesn't matter. You're going to pay tax on the gain anyway, mm-hmm. number one. Uh, number two is structuring the debt in a way that you can track the interest expense. And last week, we were talking about one of our solutions called an all-in-one bank account or a home equity line of credit. And the ability to create a sub-account in your line of credit is ideal for this purpose, where you separate the the loans or the different debts for different purposes. And so this would be, let's say, example, you had 25000 owing on your mortgage, st- or sorry, on a car loan, and you had you know twenty grand owing on a line of credit somewhere else, and you're paying prime plus one. Well, you could turn around, and right, so you basically owe forty five grand. Mm-hmm. You could turn around, sell forty five grand worth of stock, pay off those two debts. In your line of credit, create a separate sub-account for $45,000. Use that money to purchase, repurchase your stock. Now you can track the separate amount of interest that you're paying for that investment purpose. Right. And you'll be able to demonstrate to CRA, if they ever audited you, exactly what the money was used for. And you have a paper trail in place. And uh, so the idea in that is that you can save yourself a lot of money. And really, if you think about if, if you were borrowing 45 grand at prime plus one, that's 3.7%, you would pay $1,665 of interest each year just to service that, assuming you didn't pay any of it down. But you could borrow that same money at 3.2%, prime plus a half on a home equity line of credit, saves you half a percent already. But now you get to deduct the interest expense that you pay. So your net cost to borrow works out to about 1.8%, and it saves you about $850 of interest each year and tax. Mm. So really, it's about creating 
uh, a more efficient way to have your debt, create tax-deductible debt. If there's such a thing as good debt versus bad debt, Mm -hmm. this is one area where you could kind of call this is good debt versus the bad debt structure. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc., a couple of ways to get a hold of them. Uh, you can call now, leave a message at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And don't forget their website, Andy and Don, all one word, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can listen to old archive shows and ask a question there via the listener inquiry button. Thank you, gentlemen. Have Thank a great weekend. Thank you very weekend. much, Scott. Thanks, Scott.